I do not think that I will ever get tired repeating the opening line of the opening sentence of the letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a young church plant in the first century city of Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing while living in Vancouver, while living in Canada, because we are also living in the heavenly places in Christ, in Vancouver, in Canada. Every, every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. We who live in Canada are among the most fortunate human beings alive. Spectacular beauty, people from every part of the world make their home here, a system of government with checks and balances, and a solvent banking system. Canada has one of the strongest banks in the world. Not that that is where we are to put our hope, but it sure does help having banks that are reliable. One of the strongest banks is Scotiabank. It uses the advertising phrase, you are richer than you think. Every day in Canada, we see and hear, you are richer than you think. Now, I know that I will be conflating historical periods and geological, geographical locations in what I'm about to say. But I think that if the Apostle Paul was walking down one of the streets of our city and saw the Scotiabank sign, he would first warn us of the potential of idolatry, and then he would say something like this, I have very good news for you. In Jesus Christ, you are richer than you think. Or more faithful to what he develops in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, he would say, in Jesus Christ, you are much richer than you think. In relationship with the one who owns it all, in Christ, in the heavenly places, you are infinitely richer than you think. Let us pray. Dear God, it's a wonder of how you got a hold of the Apostle Paul in a jail cell, for goodness sake, and enabled him to think these thoughts and write these words that we have heard this morning. And I pray now in your mercy and grace that you would help these words come alive in our experience as never before, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The original Greek of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, the text that Braden read for us, is one sentence, one long sentence, one of the longest sentences in the Bible. Paul will have other long sentences in his letter, but none as long as 1, 3 to 14. 202 words opening up for us the every spiritual blessing with which the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ in the heavenly places. One sentence, 
one complex sentence, but not one of those random run-on sentences that our English grammar teachers try to help us avoid. One commentator observes that in the one sentence, each thought builds on the previous one, sometimes explaining, sometimes elaborating, but always moving forward. Is there some kind of structure to this one sentence that can help us navigate our way through it? It is possible that Paul wrote it in three parts. Did you see and hear the phrase to the, glory, to the praise of that was repeated three times? Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So, some students of Ephesians then suggest that in this repeated to the praise of, we have a possible threefold breakdown of the long sentence, a Trinitarian structure. Verses three to six, up to the first to the praise of, Paul is speaking of God the Father as the source and origin of every spiritual blessing. Verses seven to 12, up to the second to the praise of, Paul speaks of God the Son as the agent and location of every spiritual blessing. And then verses 13 to 14, up to the third to the praise of, Paul speaks of God the Holy Spirit as the seal of every spiritual blessing, as the one who makes it all happen in our lives. But as attractive as that scheme might be, I do not think it is that neat. For one thing, God the Father is involved in all three of these proposed sections. Indeed, God the Father is the subject of nearly every finite verb in the long sentence. And for another, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is involved in all three of these proposed sections. The phrase in Christ or its equivalent is in nearly every clause of the sentence. So, I, I, I do not think there is a nice, neat structure to this one long sentence. And the reason is that Paul is so caught up in the riches of the gospel that he is writing or dictating spontaneously this outpouring of blessing, this torrential outpouring of gospel. At the end of the letter, we learned that Paul wrote this letter through his secretary, Tychicus. And at this point, I wonder how Tychicus kept up with Paul as he was dictating the sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessing. Not simply spiritual as over against material blessing but spiritual in the sense of made real by the Spirit. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee argues that most of the time when Paul uses the word spiritual, he has in mind God the Spirit. Not all the time. In Ephesians 6.12, we'll see that he refers to spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Clearly, that's a different spirit he has in mind there, a spirit from the dark side. But in this one long sentence which begins his letter, I think Dr. Fee is right. Paul is not juxtaposing spiritual against material, as though God is not interested in giving material blessings, 
Paul is referring to the blessings which God the Holy Spirit makes real in our lives. In Christ, in the heavenly places, we are richer than we think or feel. Much richer according to the riches of grace which he lavished upon us, says Paul. Now, remember that when Paul composes this gospel-saturated sentence, he is in prison in Rome. But as we emphasized last Sunday, in prison in Rome, he is also in Christ, in the heavenly places. Under arrest in Rome, he is arrested by his true location, in Christ, in the heavenly places. He's arrested by his true state of being in Christ, richer than anyone around him would think, much richer. In his long sentence, Paul celebrates just some of the every blessing with which we've been blessed in Christ in the heavenly places. He names just seven, one for every day of the week, chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined to adoption, redeemed, forgiven, an expansive inheritance, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Each of these seven blessings is, is worth a number of separate sermons. Okay, fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. In Christ, seven blessings of the Spirit. Blessing number one, chosen. Verse four, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, just as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul begins by jumping into the deep end of the pool. Or is it that he's emerging from the deep end of the pool? The verb translated chose is elexato, which comes into our vocabulary as election. Paul will use the word again, halfway through the book at chapter four, verse one. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, to which you have been elected. The calling with which you have been chosen, elected. Now, why begin with this blessing? Why begin with being chosen, being elected before the foundation of the world? Because, I think, the Apostle Paul never lost the wonder of this part of the gospel. I think for Paul, this is the wonder of the gospel. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before. <laughs> Meaning that Paul's salvation is not grounded in himself. Paul's salvation is not, it is ground, Paul, sorry about that. Paul's salvation is not grounded in himself. Paul's salvation and all of that it means is grounded in the free, sovereign, gracious decision of the living God. It's what startled him in that experience he had on the road to Emmaus, which Jason talked about two weeks ago. Paul, then Saul, was engaged in a campaign 
to stomp out what he considered blasphemy and nonsense that Christians were proclaiming about Jesus of Nazareth. Paul was engaged in a campaign, a terrorist campaign, to wipe the name of Jesus off the pages of history. But to his surprise, Jesus Messiah is alive and he broke into him claiming Paul as his own. And from that day on, Paul lived out of a deep, liberating realization that his salvation is not grounded in anything he did or did not do. His salvation is grounded in the free, sovereign, gracious choice in Christ. God chose to love Paul and claim him for himself. It's the wonder of the gospel, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, I know that this first blessing raises all kinds of questions. Questions that lead to issues with really fancy words like double predestination, reprobation, infralapsarianism, superlapsarianism, eternal decree. Greater minds than mine have sought to wrestle with all these issues and still have not satisfactorily solved them. So I find that the best thing to do is focus on what is clear in Paul's first blessing that he talks about. Paul names chosen before the foundation of the world first because this is where our security lies. As Paul learned, our salvation is not grounded in ourselves. Our salvation is not grounded in anything we did or do, in anything we did not do or do not do. It's not even grounded in God's foreknowledge of what we would do or not do, or what we do and not do. Our salvation, again, is grounded in God's free, sovereign, gracious choice in Christ to claim us for himself. Blessed be his name. Now, what Paul emphasizes in this long sentence is the reason for this choosing, that we might be holy and blameless before him. Holy. Many people bristle at this word because we are not in and of ourselves holy. But we need not bristle. Holy is what the living God is. Three times the angelic choir repeats the word holy, holy, holy. It is what God is. And it is what God made us to be. It is what all of us deep down in our souls want to be even if we've never heard the word holy. Holy, it means pure, clean, clear, whole. To be holy is to be whole, like the whole God. I mean, who does not want to be whole? <laughs> the Holy One chooses us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. My response is, bring it on. Now, note carefully. God does not choose us in Christ because we are holy and blameless. God does not choose us in Christ because we are trying to be holy and blameless. God does not choose us in Christ because God foresees that one day we might be holy and blameless. Being holy is not the ground of our salvation. It's the goal. From before the foundation of the world, before we were made, the plan has been for us to be made like the holy God, clean, clear, 
and pure and full of light and beauty. Blessing number one, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In Christ, we are richer than we know or feel, much richer. Blessing number two, adoption. Verse five, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself. Predestined. Again, do not get hung up on all the questions that word raises. Hear Paul's fundamental declaration. In Christ, we have a destiny. We are not accidents. Contrary to the contemporary myth, we are not accidents. No human being is an accident. We have been destined. For what? Adoption. In the Roman world, a wealthy man would want to pass on his riches to an heir. If he had no son of his own, or if the relationship with his son was somehow broken, he would select one of his trusted servants and adopt him as his heir. Can you imagine how that servant would feel? From rags to riches overnight, no longer servant of Mr. Wealthy, but now son of Mr. Wealthy, heir of Mr. Wealthy, predestined to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself. Now, in this case, God the Father has a son whom he loves, the beloved, as Paul calls him in verse 6. And God the Father is very pleased with this son, understatement. So he does not need to go around looking for some other people to become the heir of his wealth. Instead, out of sheer grace, the father decides to make other sons and daughters and bring them into the deal with the beloved son. Theologian J.I. Packer argues in his classic book, Knowing God, which he wrote when he was only 45 years old, that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. Packer especially emphasizes this, and it's surprising for a Reformed theologian. Reformed theologians emphasize justification as the great blessing of the gospel. But, but Packer says, no, no. Greater than justification is adoption. In justification, God the judge declares that sinners are not and never will be liable to the death their sins deserve because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place. Yet, says Packer, this is not the highest blessing. Adoption is higher. Why? Because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Packer writes, Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Then Packer writes this, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. Indeed. Oh, there's so much involved in this blessing. For now, simply rejoice with me in the fact that in adoption, 
we enter into and participate in the relationship at the center of the universe. Before the foundation of the world, there was a relationship between a father and a son. And this relationship so pulsated with life that the relationship itself was a breathing, a spirit, a person, the Holy Spirit. We were created by that relationship. We were created to enter into and participate in that relationship. Jesus, the one natural son, the one, the one natural child of God, comes to us and brings us, taking us home to the Father, to be in the Father's house. And by his Spirit, he enables us to know the Father so deeply that we too pray the way he prays, Abba, Father. Fred Sanders of, of Talbot Theological Seminary puts it this way, Christians are people who pray as if they were Jesus. Should I say that again? Christians are people who pray as if they were Jesus, Abba, Father, destined for adoption. According to his kind will, Paul says, more literally, according to his good pleasure. Get this, what pleases the living God, what gives the holy God great pleasure is to bring human beings who are not yet holy into this eternal relationship at the center of the universe. It will take the rest of our lives for us to completely understand this blessing. We are so much richer than we think or feel. Blessing number three, redemption. Verse seven, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption, in Christ we have redemption. Now, it's not simply a synonym for salvation. The word has a very particular meaning. Not salvation in general, but a particular kind of salvation. As Leon Morris of Australia points, it, points out, whereas we, in our time, hear the word redemption and begin to think in religious terms, people of Paul's day heard the word and immediately thought in non-religious terms. The verb form of the word simply means to loose and it speaks of all kinds of loosening. Loosening of clothing, loosening of tied up animals, and so on. Now, it was specially used of loosening human beings from captivity of one sort or another. Loosening slaves, loosening prisoners from jail, loosening political hostages, loosening, pe loosening people from oppressive debt. And doing so by some kind of payment releasing slaves and prisoners and hostages and debtors by someone paying the price of redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Now, naming this blessing at this point of his long sentence may initially seem like a diversion from the flow of the long sentence, chosen to be holy, before God, adopted into relationship with God, then redeemed. It initially feels as though Paul has just randomly thought of another blessing. But when you think it through more carefully, you realize that is not the case at all. We have redemption. The words point to the human condition apart from the grace of God. We have redemption points to the fact which all of us know, but seldom admit that apart from grace, we are in bondage, that we are held captive. 
And unless we are loosened and released from the bondage, we cannot then enter into and enjoy being chosen and adopted. In order to actually live the riches of being chosen and adopted, we have to be set free from the bondage. This is one of the deepest movements of the human heart, is it not? The longing to be free. I mean, we see this all over the world today. Human beings long to be free. And what Paul wants us to realize is that the bondage is much worse than bondage to dictators or terrorists or ideologies. It's much worse than bondage to corruption and lies and injustice. We are being held by much stronger forces and powers, by sin and evil and darkness and death. And what we need is redemption from that deeper captivity. What Paul is celebrating in his long senses is in, that in Christ, we indeed have the redemption we need. Through his blood, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have been released. Now, how it all works is beyond, uh, beyond our, our scope today. But what Paul is celebrating is that when Jesus Christ shed his blood on that Roman cross, we were redeemed from all that holds humanity captive. Get this, by his blood, we have been released from the curse of the law. We've been released from the compulsion of sin. We've been released from the lordship of unseen powers in the heavenly places. We have been released from the lies that ensnare our mind and heart. We've been released from the finality of death and therefore from the fear of death. The Son of Man, says Jesus, his favorite way of referring to himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to pay the price to set the captives free. In him we have redemption. And now we belong to him. In Paul's day, what people redeemed, they then owned. When Jesus Christ redeems us by his blood, he now owns us. I am his, you are his. He sets free, us free from all that holds humans in bondage so that we might belong to him and that we might live in the glorious freedom of the children of God. We are much richer than we think or feel. Okay, just... Take a little breath. I need to get a cup of water. This would be a place, time to stand up and dance and do something to rejoice in this gospel. That's enough. All right. Blessing number one, chosen to be holy. Blessing number two, destined for adoption. Blessing number three, redeemed to belong to Jesus. Blessing number four, forgiven. Verse seven, we have been forgiven our transgressions. Forgiven. Now, this is not just another synonym for redemption. Forgiveness is all about the restoration of relationship. Theoretically, we could be redeemed from bondage, but not yet be in relationship. Someone could come along and release captives from jail and then walk off, not wanting any further relationship. Forgiveness is about establishing a relationship with the released captives. Of our trespasses, of our transgressions, says Paul. Forgiveness of our trespasses. Now here Paul is choosing his words very carefully. 
The authors of the Bible use three different words to describe our condition apart from the grace of God. They are sin, transgression, and iniquity. Sin, it simply means to miss the mark. Like an archer, you pull back the, uh, the arrow, you shoot it, and you miss the mark. We all sin. We all miss the mark in one way or another. Transgression or trespass, it means to cross the line. We come up to a fence or gate with a sign, no trespassing. We think about it for a while, but we go through it anyway. We, trust, we trespass and go ahead and cross the line. You come to a sign that says, you must wear a mask. We read it and we transgress it anyway. We all do it in one way or another. Sin, transgression, and iniquity. It refers to this thing in us that makes us miss the mark and cross the line. It, this twistedness in us, this perversion in us that makes us want to cross the line. Ah, by his blood, he rescues us from this iniquity. He releases us from this horrible grip. By his blood, he erases the sin, our missing the mark. He wipes the slate clean. And by his blood, he forgives the transgression. He chooses not to hold our overtly disobedient acts against us. And he takes the rap for us to bring us back into relationship with him and his father. Forgiven. Blessing number five. Insight or clued in, verses eight and nine. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of time. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God has made known to us the mystery the mystery of history. This word mystery does not refer to something hidden which only those who have the magic key can unlock. You, you do not need to have, be a Jedi master in order to know this mystery. The word mystery re refers to God's program for the world. God's program for the world that has always been there for all the ages, but which no one on their own could figure out. It had to be revealed by God for us to know it which we can now know because the key to the mystery has come to us. The key is Jesus Christ. He's the key to the mystery of history. And what Paul is celebrating in his long every spiritual blessing sentence is that in relationship with the key, we now know the mystery. In all wisdom, practical skill, in all insight, intellectual comprehension. And what is the mystery? It is all going to be summed up in Christ. It'll all be summed up. All the lines of history, social, political, economic, scientific, moral, will all be summed up at a time determined by God. God will work all things according to his pleasure, bringing everything in the universe to be summed up in Christ. Now, Paul uses an image-rich word to make his point. The, the verb on which the noun is built, it, 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 the, the, sorry, the verb is built on the noun kephale, which means head. So the letter, literal rending of the verb would therefore be sum up under a head 
or some up under one head, which is why some translations render this word recapitulate. Literally, put the head back on. Recapitulate. That is the mystery none of us would have ever figured out on our own. God is going to recapitulate all things. He's going to put the head back on all things. <laughs> Which is to say that apart from Jesus Christ, we are running around with our heads off. All over the world right now, people are asking, what's gone wrong? What is wrong with us? Newscasters will say, I don't understand what is wrong. The biblical answer, we're running around with our heads cut off. Kaput, the heads off. We have then capitulated to forces beneath our dignity. We now have sought comfort in things that hold us in bondage. I was speaking at a pastor's conference in California some time ago, and to a person, the pastors were lamenting the collapse of Western civilization, the implosion, as many put it. This was pre-Donald Trump, pre-Hong Kong demonstrations, pre-pandemic, pre-racial turmoil, pre-January 6th. What has happened to Western civilization? What has happened is that we've decided to try to do it on our own. We are running around with our heads off. But the mystery, open to all to know, is that in God's good pleasure, he is going to recapitulate it all. He's going to put the head back on the human race, which he's doing even now in the church, moving everything towards the summing up of all things under Jesus Christ as the head. Oh, how rich we are. I need to keep moving. But let blessing number six, inheritance. Verse 11, in Christ, we also have obtained an inheritance. Of course. Of course. This one long sentence has been moving toward this blessing of our portfolio for a long time. We've been chosen. We've been adopted. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We've been clued in on history, all leading to obtaining an inheritance. We've been made partakers of an inheritance. Now, you might know there's a debate about whose inheritance Paul is talking about. Is it ours? It is something, is it something we've obtained? Or is it God's? Something God has obtained. As in the Old Testament, where again and again, God speaks of his people as his inheritance, his portion, his possession. So is it that we now possess something? Or is it that God now possesses something? I wonder if Paul put it the way he did because it means both. God now possesses something, namely us, men and women in Christ. That makes sense. God chose us. God adopted us. God redeemed us. God forgave us for himself to make us his own, to make us his inheritance. And now he's investing all of his wealth in us like a new homeowner. You buy a new house and then you spend even more money to just make it yours. Or, or better yet, like the owner of a hockey team, you're going to just spend all your wealth so that this hockey team, team wins the Stanley Cup. God has obtained an inheritance, and that inheritance is us. <laughs> and we thereby obtain an inheritance because we get to enjoy his inheritance. We get to enjoy 
God spending all of his wealth on us to make us his people. Thus, blessing number seven, sealed. Verses 13 and 14. You were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of his own possession. Sealed. When we believe we were sealed. Whenever we hear the gospel of our salvation and believe, however inadequately, we are sealed. This is what happens when you sign the mortgage papers at a bank. The deal is sealed. To seal is to authenticate the deal and to secure the deal. When we believed, we were sealed. Ah, with what? Sealed with what? With the Holy Spirit. I mean, my goodness. God authenticates the deal in Christ with the Holy Spirit. God secures the deal with his son, with the Holy Spirit, with the third person of the Trinity. Who, says Paul, is the pledge of our inheritance? Now, the word that Paul uses is the word arabon, A-R-R-A-B-O-N. It's a business term. It refers to a down payment or a first installment. A buyer puts down the down payment. The seller puts down the first installment. Now, get this. An arabon binds both parties in the deal, both the buyer and the seller. When the buyer puts down an arabon, the down payment, but does not come up with the rest of the, of the payment, he or she, she loses the arabon, loses the down payment. But when the seller puts down an arabon, the first installment, and fails to deliver on the rest, he or she is obligated by law to pay double the arabon, double the first installment. My goodness. <laughs> the living God is authenticating the deal in Christ with his Holy Spirit. He is sealing the deal in Christ with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the Arabon. He's the first installment. And God is saying that if he fails to fulfill the promise, which will never happen given his character, but if it does, God will pay twice the Arabon. God will pay twice the first installment. God will pay twice the Holy Spirit. God will pay twice himself. Mercy. What, what a portfolio. We are richer than we ever imagined. And to think that Paul is celebrating all of this out of a prison cell. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Therefore, very secure. Predestined in Christ for adoption. Therefore, a new identity. Redeemed in Christ by his blood, therefore free. Forgiven in Christ of all our transgressions, therefore restored to relationship. Clued in on the mystery, therefore insight into everything being summed up in the true head of our humanity. Inheritance in Christ, sharing in all that God has and sealed in Christ, God himself the first installment on our future. Oh, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
And that's just the first sentence of the letter.